Hello and welcome to the review show on Crime Time FM. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And let's face it, there's a lot of crime fiction to write about. So many books, so little time. And if that isn't a blues song, it should be. So it's time to take a look at some of the crime fiction that's on offer this August. There are three or four real crackers here. But all of these books are worthy of your attention one way or another. They wouldn't be here if I didn't think they weren't worth talking about. So they have something that I think recommends them. Then, of course, it's down to you and your personal choice what kind of book you like to read. Cozy, dark, spy, historical. One way or another, they're all here anyway. So take a look at these. So how about we start with The Twist of a Knife by Anthony Horowitz. I suppose the headline point about this book is that it's just a joy to read. I wouldn't say I was the world's greatest fan of metafiction, but nobody does it better, and nobody does it with better comedic effect than Anthony Horowitz. I mean, this is funny, it's imaginative, it's sharply observed, and it's warmly entertaining. So for those who don't know, Anthony Horowitz has made himself a character in his book, and he writes up the cases of a private detective. The perennial battle between the fictional Horowitz and his detective creation Hawthorne is in full swing as the novel opens. Hawthorne is wooing the publisher over a new deal, something that's got Horowitz's nose out of joint, as Hawthorne is about to take a bigger chunk of the royalties. And that new 50-50 split in royalties is a good place for an argument to start. The character Horowitz's resentment is building up as he finds out more and more about the discussions between his publisher and the detective. But while he's seething, there's something else on his mind. Horowitz's new play, Mind Game, is about to open at the Vaudeville in London. Hawthorne could care less, and the Sunday Times theatre critic Harriet Throsby pans the play. And you can get a sense of the in-jokes from these opening sequences. Anyway, she says it's a painful virago, and that may well be one of her kinder comments. But Horowitz's evening is about to get much worse. Things soon go awry, and Horowitz never needed Hawthorne more, much as it pains him to admit it, because Harriet Throsby is murdered with an antique dagger that just happens to belong to the writer. So can the two of them get on long enough so that Hawthorne can help Horowitz avoid a nasty prison term. Consummate writing, as well as being inventive, Horowitz is a very clever technician. This is just pure unadulterated fun. Plenty of in-jokes, self-deprecating humour, exposed insecurities, an homage to Golden Age mysteries. I could go on. But this is one for people who like their crime fiction light, clever, entertaining and uplifting. Published by Century Penguin in hardback and available now. So, I'm not actually looking to pick a specific book of the month, but the Anthony Horowitz is way up there, and so is the next choice. This is a much darker read, perhaps the most noir book of the month, with elements of Southern Gothic, and it'll beat you up and tear out your heart at the same time. Muscular and emotionally draining in equal measure. It's set in Texas, it asks a question about what would make a man an ordinary man become a killer for money. Mario and his family have a good life, if poor. Then his daughter becomes ill with leukemia. There may be a radical new treatment, but of course that's only available for those with serious money. Mario takes a job, a hit, set up by his mate Brian. He's that desperate. The money is not enough, and of course all the while little Anita is dying, and his marriage is being torn apart. So Mario turns again to Brian, and he introduces him to a Mexican crook, Juan Carr. He's planning to rob a cartel of two million dollars. This is life-changing money. 
but Mario is rapidly reaching the point of no return. The family drama is poignant, and the relationship between the criminals is equally rich in its humanity, albeit the dark side. The spiral into a living hell is vivid and bruising, believably incremental, as the goodness in Mario is slowly squeezed out of him. Some readers will find that relentless toughness hard to take, but I tell you the plot is tense and gripping. The double cross, the heist, it's all very clever and it's totally gripping. An absolute must for all fans of American dark noir fiction. Published by headline Wildfire in hardback. Sticking with American fiction, but now for something totally different. The Late Comer by Jean Hanf Korolitz. Last year's The Plot by Hanf Korolitz was one of the books of 2021, and her earlier work, You Should Have Known, reached the small screen as The Undoing in 2020. The HBO show was shown on Netflix in the UK, and some of the disappointments with the series don't apply to the book. The new offering, The Latecomer, has Hanf Korolitz's trademark clever plotting and a beguiling readability, which is important as it's more than 500 pages long, though it honestly doesn't feel like it. When you start to read this book, some of you are going to wonder whether it's actually crime fiction or just a dysfunctional family drama. I have to say, I very quickly got to the point where I didn't care. I was so interested in the characters and their stories, their maladjusted lives, that I just was totally gripped by it. What might at first appear to be a deeply cynical book is actually a very hopeful book, as the author explores not the usual idea of siblings, their love-hate relationship, but a family with no apparent bond to break. It's satirical and at times very funny. What, after all, does wealth, privilege and advantage mean without love, without the ability to connect? Once released from the forced closeness of the womb, the Oppenheimer triplet can't get far enough away from each other over the years. As they're about to head for college and permanent separation at the age of 18, a further child is born into the family, Phoebe, and in ways they can't yet imagine, she's going to have a profound effect on the triplets' lives. Much as they seek full independence, life has a habit of making those connections anyway. All the characters have fascinating story arcs. There are revelations, surprises, even shocks, and crimes, and fierce emotions to deal with the whole time. Essentially, this is about life, and that includes race, class, politics, and how random it can be how it matters only if we have relationships to fall back on. This story can be cruel, wise and beautiful, but it's so, so readable. Available now in paperback from Faber and Faber. Another complete change of pace now as we have two pulps from John Trinian. First a high story, The Big Grab. Originally published in 1959 and filmed in 1963 as Any Number Can Win, starring Jean Gabon and Alain Delon. Karl Heisler is in his 50s. He's aged by 14 years inside, and his wife wants him to get a job and settle down. But Karl has one more job in mind, and for that he needs a partner. So Frank Toshi, a younger man, his former cellmate, is drafted in. The job's going to net $250,000, but it's risky. They're going to be taking down Skyline House, a mob money store. The way Carl looks at it, it's not as if they can call the cops. But believe me, this is going to run them into a whole heap of trouble. This reminds me of Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, which is drawn on Lionel White's clean break, and that's pointed out by Brian Greene in his introduction to this novel. 
There's also an essay by Nicholas Litchfield in this edition, which is really well worth a read, because it tells you a little bit about John Trinian, whose real name was Ezekiel Marco, and he had quite a life. Anyway, back to the story. This is a proper page-turner, and the robbery itself is tense, suspenseful and gripping, genuinely nervy. But that's not the novel's only strength. The two characters, Carl, dealing with his pride and his family, and this is what he feels a last chance in life, and Frank, with his girls and his expensive tastes, are intriguing and well-drawn. On the other side of the coin, the hood Leon Bertuzzi is an old-school gangster trying to control the ambition of a young deputy trying to stir it up with the bosses in Chicago. And the interplay between those two is both sharply observed and funny, playing on generational differences. The second story by Trinian in this doubleheader volume is a melodrama, The Savage Breast. D.B. Sadder is 30 years old and still doing exactly what her rich and powerful father wants her to do. He's a man she loathes and fears. Meanwhile, her ex-husband is blackmailing her about their divorce, which is still a secret from Daddy. Gordon is the son of an important judge, and that's why Daddy engineered her marriage to him in the first place. D.B. actually doesn't make good choices. She falls for composer Harry Dazia. Dazia's half-brother, Sandro, is a misogynist and possibly a psychopath, and he doesn't take at all well to D.B. and Harry getting together. Gordon, not content to blackmail his former wife, is now set on a little revenge. Can D.B. and Harry escape from the spiral of tragedy brewing around them? The people dragging them down, and is Harry the real deal? D.B. loves him, after all. This is nowhere near as intriguing as the big grab. But nevertheless, it's well plotted, and the observations on character are pretty spot on which does make it an interesting read. It's a two-novel volume, published by Starkhouse Press in paperback and available now. A modern rural noir now from one of the best, Wiley Cash. This Dark Road to Mercy is a reprint of the 2014 novel, I'm guessing prompted by the success of When Ghosts Come Home last year. After the sudden death of their mother, Easter Quilby and her sister Ruby are put in care. When they're twelve and six respectively, the girls are broken out by their father Wade, a man they haven't really had any kind of relationship with up until now. Leaving their North Carolina care home might seem like an escape, but Wade has a price on his head of $50,000, and an old friend more than happy to collect. Wade has been mixing with the wrong company and getting into some seriously bad things, so it's out of the frying pan into the fire for the girls. Meanwhile, ex-cop Brady Weller has been a court-appointed guardian for the girls, and he takes it upon himself to find them and bring them home. Easter is a fascinating character. This is her coming of age, her realisation of her father's character, and all of that is sent against the backdrop of a cat-and-mouse chase. This is a clever plot, and an emotionally wrought tale of the girls caught up in the adults' chaos and, and rampant dysfunction. Cash's smooth and easy style gently gets you into a story that will turn you inside out emotionally. Classy stuff. Published by Faber and Faber, and available now in paperback. Well, nothing if not consistent in hopping around genres and actually locations, we now have The Last House by R.J. Adams, which is set in a small village in Wales. Adams is a long-term social worker turned writer, and the novel clearly reflects some of the stories amassed over the years. More importantly, it conveys the complex, troubling, an emotionally draining nature of social work. It feels truly grounded. 
So this psychological thriller takes place in a small community in Sand Beach. Social worker Kit Goddard investigates what she believes to be the physical abuse of a 17-year-old boy by his mother, a case that no one else seems to want to take on. Dylan's mother is considered weird. His grandmother spent some time in a psychiatric hospital. Naturally, there's plenty of stigma attached to the family. Dylan and his mother don't want to talk. Rumours abound in the community, but then so does mistrust of authority. There are dark secrets at the heart of this book. The real thriller plotline, which goes quite a lot deeper than the story of the 17-year-old boy and his mum, important as that may be in its own right. I'm not convinced that the blend of authenticity, drama and mystery is as smooth as it could be, but nonetheless this is an interesting read. It's nice to see the role of social workers, on the whole, presented positively. Not all of them are good here, of course. We see the caring, whereas in the news all we see is the tragedy. Published by Quercus in hardback and available now. One of our ministers is missing by Alan Johnson. Perhaps a nod there to the old movie, One of Our Aircraft is Missing. Anyway, the former Labour government minister and memoirist debuted last year with the late train to Gypsy Hill. One of the things I really liked about that sort of romantic political thriller was it didn't really rely on Johnson's insider role in government and his self-importance for the story. Too many politicians don't get that. It's not about their time in office. We really don't get that many good crime books by politicians. But Alan Johnson's efforts are creditable. It seems to me that he's learned quite a lot about the art of crime writing in between the two novels. One of our ministers is missing will instantly conjure up memories of John Stonehouse for those who are old enough to remember that period in the 70s, when the Labour politician suddenly disappeared from the beach in Miami and attempt to fake his own death. And that must have been somewhere in Johnson's mind when he decided on this novel. But I have to say it's an original story and it takes its own path. And it all begins in Stoke Newington in London. Brady is a hitman and he takes a couple of jobs a year to keep him going. He's managed to stay under the radar by not taking political jobs and not hitting the wrong kind of people. But now he has a new job, and it's a sticky one. Lord Edward Bellingham is a junior Foreign and Commonwealth Office Minister. He and his wife love holidaying in Crete. But when Bellingham goes missing, it's clear his wife and the nanny are hiding something. Meanwhile, a scandal is brewing in Westminster. And the connection between those things is not as obvious as you might think. I like the fact that Johnson manages to set several hairs running at the same time and pulls a surprise or two along the way. This is eminently readable. Perfect for the beach, perhaps. Published by Wildfire Headline, and available in hardback from the 1st of September. From Crete to Boston, for Ace Atkins last Spencer novel. Bye Bye Baby. This is his 10th and the 50th in the Robert B. Parker franchise. The next novel will be written by Mike Lupica. Carolina Garcia Ramirez is an upcoming congresswoman a progressive up against a dyed-in-the-wool dinosaur in the coming election. I'm pretty sure that Ace Atkins had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in his mind as the model for his politician Carolina. There's more than a little reflection on the times we live in here. There have been threats to her life, and a chief of staff has called on Spencer as extra security. Naturally, Carolina resents his presence, fearing it may make her look weak. But it's soon clear that the danger is very real. Her office is broken into, and someone on the inside may be feeding information to her enemies. This is a nice blend of socially aware commentary and fast, brief, fun crime writing. Fully in the spirit of Spencer, and a fitting finale from Atkins. I'm generally sceptical about series that 
continue after the original author dies. But Atkins and Lupica, who does the Sonny Randall and Jesse Stone series, do a great job keeping the torch alive for these Robert B. Parker characters, published by No Exit Press in paperback and available now. Back to psychological thrillers now. Hide and Seek by Andrea Mara. This thriller plays on our worst nightmare, a missing child. It's troubling, loaded with tension, and an emotional roller coaster of a ride. Set in Dublin, in 1985, Lily Murphy was playing hide-and-seek with her parents, but when the game was over, she was gone. Her parents searched frantically but never found her. The investigation went nowhere. It hangs over the community. So now fast forward to 2018. Joanna moves into the same Dublin suburb, in fact into the same house, where Lily disappeared all those years before. Lily's story is mentioned and Joanna can't help but want to know more. This might actually be personal for her. As she learns more about Lily's disappearance, she actually gets the feeling that she may well know what happened, that maybe she's even responsible. There are a couple of really nice twists in this involving drama. It's well plotted and emotionally draining. Published by Bantam Press in hardback available now. And just in case, as we come to the penultimate review, I should tell you that the details of these books are all on the program notes, so check it out. So, From the Ashes, by Deborah Masson. This novel opens with a terrifying and tantalising image. Tantalising in the sense that even though it's horrible, you can't look away. There's someone standing there, watching, as a fire takes hold at a children's home. D.I. Eve Hunter, who has her own troubled past, is called to the scene at Wellwood Children's Home, near Aberdeen. What she finds is that one of the children is unaccounted for. The body is discovered in a crawl space below the building. This is a police procedural, but more than that, it's a psychological thriller. It's strong on the effects of the crime on the workers and the children and the police officers involved in the case. I mean, what could possibly lead to somebody doing something as terrible as this? This feels very grounded and naturally the story is very poignant and at times utterly chilling. Available in paperback from Transworld now. And so slightly off-piste again for my last review. After the Lights Go Out by John Vircher. This is perhaps another book that doesn't quite fit that strict definition of a crime novel. But this is a Greek tragedy, and it's very much a noir. The characters are on a descent with no return. It's got the pace of a thriller but it's actually the story of an MMA fighter, mixed martial arts, who's got pugilistic dementia, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And you have no idea how difficult I found it to say that word, so if I got it wrong, I'm not looking for anybody to write and tell me so. From now on, it's CTE. Anyway, back to the story. Xavier is on the comeback trail, heading for a big fight, but he's also looking out for his dad who's got Alzheimer's and is living in a care home. Xavier is a biracial man, and he's got to come to terms with the fact that now that his inhibitions are gone, he can see that his father is a racist. It's a novel about racism, identity, guilt, loyalty, misplaced loyalty perhaps is a better way to say that, family, mental health, and even gentrification and loss of community. One of the things that really stands out is the propulsive and gripping nature of the story, despite the fact that it's an encompassing complex portrait of character. There's a boldness and originality to it too, and the themes couldn't be more relevant. But this is not about MMA. It's about a man who happens to be an MMA fighter. So don't be put off if you don't like sports. Just like Virtue's debut, Three Fifths, this is an intelligent, thought-provoking, and emotionally strong novel. 
It's not just the sadness, you can actually feel the character's pain and torment too. It deals with memory and how unreliable it is, and the correlation between memory and rewriting history, so it has very wide themes. It'll leave you thinking about all sorts of things, maybe in new ways, and certainly stuff that you may not realise mattered to you, but it really, really does. Published by Pushkin Press, and available now. And so one last thing now. I asked author Emily Freud to give us an introduction to her book, What She Left Behind. Actually, for 90 seconds, I think this is a really good way of introducing a book and getting people interested. See what you think. I'm Emily Freud, and I'm here to tell you a bit more about my new psychological thriller, What She Left Behind. But I really shouldn't, because the less you know about the plot, the more you'll enjoy it. I wrote the first draft during the winter of 2020-2021, so I suppose you could call this my lockdown novel, a new genre, apparently. It's not set during a pandemic, but my thoughts and fears permeate through it. Claustrophobia, repetition, the same walk up and down the stage I set for the characters. The way they can't leave. When they try, they're boomeranged back again. The main themes are motherhood and coercive control. I'd been stuck in my flat with a six-month-old and a two-year-old that spring. I was plagued by thoughts of those trapped with abusive partners. At the time, various celebrity men had been accused of coercive control by ex-girlfriends. I watched documentaries about cults. The process of indoctrination and brainwashing is eerily similar to the beginning of emotionally abusive relationships. I became particularly fixated on Keith Raniere, the nerdy founder of the Nexum sex cult. His finely honed version of coercive control I found fascinating. So, a brief introduction to my new book. Lauren meets a man. He's a widower with two small children. They're moving to a glass modernist house in the woods. She is so lucky, right? Thank you, Emily. And What She Left Behind by Emily Freud is available from Quirkus in paperback now. Thank you very much for listening to the review show on Crimetime FM. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope at least one or two books stand out for you. And maybe one will be your next read. I'll be back next month with another review show, and reviews will include Act of Oblivion by Robert Harris, The Iron Way by Tim Leach, the latest Tuva from Will Dean, Wolfpack, Blackstone Fell by Martin Edwards, Small Deaths by Rajula Das, and Peter Papathanasu's The Invisible. But for now, again, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>